So we're going to go out right now with a, a song by John Prine. We've just been listening to The Action by Keb Moe, followed by Blues for Baby and Me by Elton John. This one, uh, I think, will speak to a lot of people. It's called Quit Hollering at Me. Stay tuned for Healthy Options next. Support for the Barefoot Blues Hour comes from the Belfast Framer and Betts Gallery, featuring custom framing, prints, posters, and monthly exhibits of original art. Open weekdays 10 to 5 or by appointment at 96 Main Street, Belfast, 338-6465 or thebelfastframer.com. The WERU News Report, an independent alternative look at the local news with your host Amy Brown, Wednesday afternoons at 4, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. WERU health-related programming is made possible in part by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages at all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, Deergo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. Information presented on health-related programs on WERU is not meant to be taken as medical advice. Please talk with your health care provider if you have any questions or concerns. Support for WERU comes from the Grand, downtown Ellsworth's historic theater, presenting blues man Papa Chubby, Wednesday, August 15th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets and information at grandonline.org. The Grand is a nonprofit organization. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM. You are most likely tuned to us online at www.weru.org. We are now... uh, I don't think that we are actually broadcasting. If we are, and when we do, it's at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And uh, as I said, streaming online at WERU.org. We are doing some work on our transmitter now. We're switching over to our brand new transmitter, so we are on and off for this next few days and hopefully back on with a brand new transmitter soon. We've got Healthy Options with your host, Andre Bella, coming up next. I'm Andre Bella, your host for today on Healthy Options, a radio show that informs you about current and important issues in integrative medicine. Today's show is Violence, Our Deadly Epidemic and Its Causes, and with us today is Dr. James Gilligan, considered by many to be the foremost authority on violence in the U.S. James Gilligan is a psychiatrist who has been on the faculty of New York University since 2002, where he teaches forensic psychiatry fellows in the medical school how to understand and treat individuals who have committed serious acts of violence, and leads seminars on the causes and prevention of violence in the law school and the School of Arts and Science. From 1966 to 2000, he was on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. During most of that time, in addition to maintaining a private practice in general adult psychiatry, 
He specialized in research on the causes, consequences, prediction, and prevention of violent behavior. In 1977, he became the director of Harvard's Institute of Law and Psychiatry. From then until 1992, he led a team of colleagues from Harvard teaching hospitals in providing mental health and violent prevention services to the Massachusetts prison system. After two U.S. district courts reacting to an epidemic of suicides, homicides, and other violence throughout the prison system, ordered the state to bring the level of psychiatric services in the prisons up to community standards. As medical director of the Massachusetts Prison Mental Hospital for the Criminally Insane at Bridgewater, Mass., and as mental health services for the entire prison system, he supervised the training and clinical practice of psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers in the understanding and treatment of violent offenders. Dr. Gilligan has worked with uh, President Clinton, Tony Blair, the World Court, the World Health Organization, the UN, the American Civil Liberties Union. The list quite goes on and on, the number of books and documentaries that he has made on the topics. And some of his publications include um, his books, Violence, Reflections on the Deadliest Epidemic, and Preventing Violence, Prospects for Tomorrow, and his most recent book, Why Some Politicians Are More Dangerous Than Others. Uh, Dr. Gilligan, uh, welcome to Healthy Options. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, you know, I want to start out with, with I think, some of the very uh, issues that our listeners would be most interested in. Um, you know, most psychiatrists focus on, on mental illness, not on violence specifically. How, how did you happen to focus your career on the study of violence? You know, it was, it was almost by accident. When I started my psychiatric training, I didn't have any interest in uh, criminals or in other non-criminal forms of violence uh, uh, as such, except insofar as they might relate to mental illness. Uh, and uh, uh, during the middle of my training, uh, I needed to supplement my uh, uh, all-too-meager salary uh, from the Harvard Teaching Hospital I was studying in. Uh, and I found I could do that by uh, uh, kind of moonlighting uh, uh, in something I had no interest in and had never heard of before called prison psychiatry. I thought this would be an exercise in futility because I had been taught up to that point that the kinds of people who wind up in prisons are untreatable and we might as well just forget them. The psychiatry can't do anything. And I discovered to my surprise that almost everything I had been taught was wrong or was at best a half-truth. Um, what I discovered was that the people I ran into in the prisons, first of all, that this was the most emotionally moving experience I'd had in psychiatry. I was faced day to day with the deepest human tragedies. And I mean, not just the tragedies, these men, and they were all men that I had the opportunity to work with. These men had inflicted on, on their victims terrible, uh, tragic events but the tragedies that had been inflicted on them uh, prior to that point. Uh, I discovered that the most violent men in the prison had experienced a degree of violent child abuse that was off the scale of anything I had even thought of applying that term to. Uh, the most violent were the survivors of their own attempted murder by their parents or other uh, people in their environment. Uh, they were often the survivors of actual murders of close family members, uh, some of which occurred in front of their eyes, the killing of a mother or father or sibling or uncle, and so on. And I thought it was the most socially important uh, problem to which I could devote my, uh, my training as a psychiatrist. So I, uh, I totally changed my career goals and, uh, and started specializing not in mental illness as such, but in the study of violent behavior. Now, you, you make a differentiation between violence and crime as being two different subjects. Uh, what do you actually mean by that? We think of violent people as criminals. Yes. What I mean is that most violence is not criminal, and most crime is not violent. Uh, if you think about it, uh, let me talk about the first one. Most uh, uh, violence is not criminal. Um, certainly, criminal homicides, which we call murders, 
uh, those are criminal. Um, but uh, murders are in, in the United States and uh, every other developed country, murders are far outnumbered uh, by suicides, which, of course, are not considered crimes. They're not against the law. They're generally considered as a, you know, a symptom of mental illness or of just severe emotional distress. Um, and uh, capital punishment is not a crime. In fact, capital punishment is ordered by the legal system and the courts. It would be a crime not to commit capital punishment when the courts order it and the legal system, the laws do. Uh, warfare is, uh, is not a crime uh, by the country that, uh, that uh, fights the war. Uh, and in fact, it uh, has always been regarded as a crime for young men, and they are always, uh, or up to recently, have been exclusively young men, uh, refuse to fight in a war. The, the, the crime for them is not being violent. I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, as I said, most violence is not criminal, and, and uh, much of it is actually ordered by the law. Now, when I say that most, viol uh, so most violence isn't criminal, but also most crimes are not violent, whether we talk either about just the number of crimes that are enumerated in the law books or the number of people who get arrested for uh, and charged with crimes. Um, property crimes far outnumber violent crimes. Uh, by property crimes, I mean stealing things, stealing an automobile or a TV set or something. Um, drug offenses that are nonviolent, simply the uh, use or manufacture or sale or possession of illegal drugs, uh, not involving uh, violent behavior toward anyone uh, is uh, more frequent than violent crimes. And uh, so-called crimes against morals, gambling, prostitution, any number of things like that. Uh, so all in all, I've come to feel that one reason we've, as, as a society and as a species, I think this is true of the whole human species, one reason we've made so little progress uh, in really understanding the causes and prevention of violence and bringing violence under control is that we have fragmented the subject. We've said, uh, well, suicide is a subject for psychiatrists to study, but homicide is a subject for people in the criminal law or criminologists to study. Uh, warfare is something for political scientists or historians to study. Uh, capital punishment is a problem for... Uh, people studying uh, uh, criminal law. And, you know, one can go on and on and on. Um, cannibalism is what anthropologists study and so forth. Uh, so instead of recognizing that violent behavior has, whatever form it takes, has a great deal in common, uh, there are many overlaps uh, between all of these forms of violence, uh, and uh, uh, until we, as I say, until we make violence as such a subject for study, we're not going to make much progress in, in understanding it better. Uh, in South America, there are uh, behavioral scientists who have coined the term violentology, uh, meaning the, the study of all forms of violence. I don't, I'm not very happy with uh, adding to the amount of jargon we already have, so I simply think of violence as a problem in public health and preventive medicine, uh, and it's something that as a, as a physician and psychiatrist, I want to study its causes and what we can do to prevent it in much the same way we study uh, heart attacks or cancer. So, so you're really looking at violence as a public health issue rather than a, a moral and a legal issue? Yes, and there are many reasons for that. One is... Um, I mean, I can understand why people make moral value judgments about violent behavior. I mean, if somebody commits a murder, uh, you know, certainly uh, if we're going to use the word uh, evil or bad or something, uh, uh, I can't think of anything more appropriate to apply the word to. But the problem is simply saying that a particular act is illegal or immoral doesn't help us in the least to understand what caused it or what we can do to prevent it. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, it, it just makes us feel better emotionally to say somebody's evil or wicked. Uh, but ultimately, that doesn't help us recognize what we uh, 
can do and, and need to do in order to uh, prevent the frequency of such behaviors. So, um, so when we look at, when you look at violence as a subject, when you study violence, what do you see as the real causes of violence? Well, you know, the thing that amazed me when I first started working with violent offenders, and it's still true today, and I've been doing this now all, all in all for 45 years, what I discovered over and over again when I would ask violent people why they had assaulted somebody or killed somebody, whether it was inside the prison or in the community, uh, the crime that led them to be sent to prison, I would get the same answer over and over again uh, because he disrespected me or he disrespected my mother or my wife or my girlfriend or, or whatever. Uh, in fact, they use the term disrespect so often they abbreviated it into the slang term, he dissed me, um, or she dissed me. And uh, it struck me that any time a word is used so often that it gets abbreviated, that tells you something about how central it is in the moral and emotional vocabulary uh, of the person using it. Um, so I concluded that one cause, one central cause, which I must say I found every in every single case of violent behavior that I, I studied. And I, I worked with virtually everybody arrested for murder in Massachusetts over a 15-year period. Uh, I, I've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have committed the most extreme violence in our society. And I would say I, I can't think of one case where there w wasn't an element of shame and humiliation as a... Uh, emotional provocation for the violence. Not an excuse. I don't believe in excusing or accusing. I believe in understanding and preventing violence. Um, but the centrality of shame and humiliation, I, I just couldn't avoid seeing. And, uh, you know, when I thought I had discovered something original that nobody had seen before, I, I, was, I had to recognize when I reread the first recorded murder in Western history, uh, namely the story of Cain and Abel in the Bible, uh, that, that was a murder that I never understood. Why in the world did Cain kill Abel? And then, after I'd actually worked with murderers, I finally discovered the Bible got there a, a long time before I did, because uh, the Bible says very clearly what the causes of murder are. It says that God had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, God had not respect. In other words, God dissed Cain, or, or Cain was dissed, you know, uh, because of Abel, and, and treated Abel exactly the same way as the murderers I saw in the prisons had treated their victims, and for very much the same reason. So, so when you look at our culture in the United States, to what extent do we have a shame culture, and how does how does that affect our thinking about violence? Well, I have very much uh, uh, I have found very useful that uh, concept that anthropologists invented of a shame culture, meaning a society in which people's behavior is uh, is influenced or shaped. Uh, some is controlled by shaming them uh, for some behaviors and uh, honoring them for others. I'd say the U.S. There's uh, a very strong emphasis toward um, shaming people in the U.S. on the basis of uh, skin color, for example. That's what I mean. Racial discrimination mm -hmm. is very much a, for, a way to shame people, treating them as if they were inferior. Um, we tend to shame people who become unemployed. I mean, you'll hear uh, uh, politicians uh, sometimes, uh, and uh, as we may discuss later, these are mostly Republican politicians who will shame people who are unemployed, saying, well, they don't really want to work. I mean, if they really wanted to work, they could go out and get a job. And, and they will say this, you know, even when there are, like, millions of job layoffs, and these people, you know are out there every day trying to find a job until sometimes after a year or two they just finally give up after the repeated humiliation of 
being rejected. I, I know in one of your books you told the story of a man who had lost his job and he pretended to his wife that he still had the job. He was going out every day at the same time and coming home and keeping this from her as long as he could. And, and if you could tell that story, I know that that ended in a terrible tragedy. Um, is that, you know, an example of things or is that a, a unique thing that happens where no. homicide takes place? No, the, the, uh, the story that you just mentioned uh, is all too typical of the, the tremendous emotional uh, trauma that people uh, suffer uh, when they uh, uh, are fired from a job or laid off from a job. Yes, this was, this was a man who uh, was sent to the uh, prison mental hospital when I was directing it, um, who had done exactly as you said. He was laid off from his job, and he was so ashamed of that that he pretended he was still at work, and he would get up in the morning as if he were going to work and come back at the usual time and so on. Finally, his wife noticed there was no money com coming in, and she confronted him and said, what's going on? And he was forced to admit the truth. And unfortunately, I mean, tragically, um, she, you know, instead of being sympathetic, um, and, and one could probably understand her frustration, she uh, erupted in anger and said, you know, what kind of man are you? What kind of man would, would behave this way? Well, he responded to his humiliation by going into his bedroom and getting a gun out of the closet and, uh, and, and went back and shot her. And then the children were screaming, so he shot them too. And uh, by the time he arrived, and, and then he just stayed in the in his apartment um, like a zombie. Um, when he was uh, finally, the police came and arrested him, sent him to the mental hospital. I directed, and he, he was just he was like a zombie. But what struck me the tragedy, and I, I asked him why you know um, why he had not also killed himself because that is the usual. Uh, uh, denouement of such events. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you've read about this in the newspaper right, yeah. dozens of times. People who will kill their families and then follow that by killing themselves. His answer to me was just blood curling. He said, you know, I'm already dead. He said, I, I, I was dead before I did this. And uh, I, psychologically and, uh, and socially and legally, that's true. You know, he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, his life is over. Now, again, obviously, the vast majority of people who lose their jobs, of course, don't behave in such an extreme way. But what I was struck by is that, you know, if even one out of a thousand, I mean, only one out of a thousand of people who get laid off uh, respond with such a depth of despair and humiliation that they act in a way that's homicidal or suicidal or both, uh, one out of a thousand. If, when we have major unemployment, we can have 10 million people who suddenly become unemployed over the course of a year or two. And one out of a thousand is 10,000 people. It's 10,000 additional suicides and homicides per year uh, when, when we have such a massive degree of, uh, of economic distress. Um, the, the man I just described is not unique. Uh, Actually, there was a, uh, a brilliant and just heartrending uh, uh, Japanese movie uh, that described a very similar phenomenon. A man who lost his job, pretended he still had it, you know, would go as if he were going to work, and finally ended up killing his family and himself. Or if you think of uh, Arthur Miller's great play, Death of a Salesman, one of the classic American plays, uh, Willie Loman, the main character, is Sean just being humiliated to death by the loss of a job that he had had all his adult life, which was the basis of his sense of self-esteem and adequacy as a man. And, of course, he winds up killing himself. So what I'm saying is what I discovered in the prison, uh, I think had been, actually had been discovered by artists long before I did. And I think often it's true. Uh, 
artists often discover things long before scientists do. Uh, and but I think you, you know you can't uh, read the world's literature without reading uh, stories that I think are are consistent with what I observed among the murderers I worked with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been a teacher all, all my life in various forms, and actually right now I, I do teach behavioral classes in a prison. But one of the things I noticed back a few years ago is the anti-bullying uh, campaigns that were going on in the schools. And I have to admit my first reaction is, well, you know, are we just coddling these kids? Are they not able to stand up on their own? And then, you know, I, I read what you wrote in your books, and I did a complete reversal on my thinking because I began to think that whenever we shame someone, are we potentially setting up the potential for a violent act in the future that may be on any of us? You're, you're absolutely right, and I think that's the, I mean, the, what, we're, what we're all discovering about the phenomenon called bullying is that it is much more damaging and much more dangerous than I think people had generally recognized in the past. But, you know, that's true of, that's true of our history in general. The whole concept of child abuse wasn't noticed or discovered until uh, uh, a husband and wife medical team um, wrote an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1963 uh, describing um, uh, child abuse, the battered child syndrome. Uh, and, you know, I could go on and on, but uh, we, we just repeatedly rediscover and rediscover uh, forms of violence that weren't even recognized as such. I, I was really uh, uh, impressed that in every single case of the, in the school shootings that occurred, you know, when we had this epidemic mm-hmm. of school shootings, and, this, and, and these still occur, of course, every single one of them, there's a, a story of the, the shooter um, uh, having felt humiliated and bullied and teased and taunted and, and shamed and ridiculed. Uh, and sometimes this uh, results in mass murder. Sometimes it just results in a, a suicide. But most of the mass murders are followed by suicide. Do you, do you know in this most recent Colorado shooting if that is true of the background of this shooter? You know, I don't know enough about him yet. I mean, I, there's not enough information has come out yet. What I would say is this. If I were uh, interviewing such a person, uh, as I've said, I've interviewed hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of, of such people, I know the questions I would, I would uh, particularly want to ask. I'd mostly want to just listen and, and let them tell me, you know, what, uh, what had gone on. But uh, if I were asking questions, I would, I would be very uh, interested in, in learning about uh, uh, the role of, of shaming or humiliation or bullying or whatever um, uh, in the case. Uh, you know, there are many ways, many different ways in which people can be uh, shamed or bullied. Uh, they're not all the same. But I, that, that's what I would, would, uh, would anticipate mm-hmm. finding in this uh, young man. Um, and, you know, if he's mentally ill, uh, uh, the people who become violent who are mentally ill uh, by and large suffer from the kinds of mental illness, uh, the, the various forms of paranoia, uh, which are very shame-based, uh, in, in which uh, the essence of the illness is... Uh, uh, feelings of shame that are so intense that people misidentify them as not just being feelings, but as being realities, and uh, and really think they are being uh, uh, criticized or humiliated or insulted, uh, uh, even when they're not, simply because their their own feelings of shame are so deep. So, so it could be real shame, or it could be perceived shame, and to that person, it's probably the same thing. That's right. And what, what I would say, though, uh, uh, is that uh, something Freud noticed about paranoia is that uh, although it is, you know, paranoid delusions of persecution, uh, you know, the, the FBI is after me or something, uh, these are, of course, they're false thoughts. That's what delusion means. But that they are always based on some kernel of reality so that the uh, person may be exaggerating and distorting the uh, uh, 
uh, degree of humiliation or the source of it. But the fact is, when you when you uh, talk, sit down and talk with them in detail, you discover that in fact they were humiliated, you know, earlier in their lives, and and they're simply uh, have been. How can I put it? It's like somebody with sunburn who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you just touch them lightly, they they uh, recoil in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd say these are people who've been kind of psychically sunburned by being severely shamed in the past. And I have you studied the Columbine incident, and did you find what it, what did you find from that, or could you make some comments about that? Well, I studied not only the Columbine shooting, but uh, also the uh, whole range of others. Uh, in fact, I was contacted by the uh, the attorney who was representing one of the youth who was engaged in a mass murder, uh, because he said this that his client just walked straight out of one of my books on violence. I mean, he, he couldn't have been a clearer yeah. example of yeah. what I had written about. Um, what I discovered was that in all of these shootings, uh, there were extreme... Uh, uh, repeated uh, instances of severe uh, shaming and humiliation, of, of insulting and, and, and uh, rejecting. Now, what was un- uh, unusual about Columbine, and to some extent of most of the school shootings, is uh, that the youths, uh, the adolescents who were engaging this behavior, uh, were generally not... Um, you know, from the, the lowest strata of, the, of our socioeconomic status system. They weren't uh, uh, poor. Uh, in most cases, they didn't belong to, um, say, ethnic groups or racial groups that are systematically subjected to, uh, to shaming in our society at large. Um, they were sometimes middle class. You know, they had many strengths and assets and resources. But they still despite all their social and economic advantages, um, sometimes growing up in a you know, reasonably prosperous middle-class home, nevertheless, they felt socially uh, awkward, uh, reviled, humiliated, and, and that, was what, uh, that was what underlay the beast. How, how, how does this tie into the availability of weapons in our culture? Well, I would say in two ways. First of all, uh, you referred earlier to the extent to which the United States can be described as a, as a shame culture. Um, uh, I would say that, that one characteristic of cultures that expose people to uh, shaming a lot, to their cultural values and beliefs and traditions and customs, uh, is that they tend to be, uh, to place a positive value on violence. They tend to approve of, for example, capital punishment. Uh, They tend to approve of corporal discipline of children. Uh, They tend to approve of husbands uh, uh, beating their wives if they can't uh, get get the wife to obey them, and so forth. Uh, And I'd say that our gun culture in the U.S. is is a symptom of our being a shame culture. Um, the, The idea that somehow you uh, it's, it's a positive value, uh, you know, to have a gun, uh, uh, the only purpose of which, of course, is to uh, shoot and kill people. Um, the idea being that if you can make a credible threat of that, even, uh, you, you can prevent violence. Um, this, this is, I look at it, first of all, as a symptom of cultural pathology which is one reason why the United States has murder rates that are five to ten times as high as those of any other country, any other developed country uh, on Earth. Um, But to get back to the the, the more usual way of talking about guns, absolutely having as many guns as we have in circulation is a recipe for uh, increasing the rate of violence. For example... Um, guns are so much more lethal than any other weapon. Uh, it, there are a number of research studies uh, concluding with things like uh, uh, if somebody shoots a, 
gun once, the victim is seven times more likely to die than if somebody stabs somebody once. And, and so, I mean, guns are much more lethal than knives or any other method of killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, it's part of our, I'd say, of the sickness in our culture that we have not been able to get uh, guns under, under control. One of the, to me, one of the more amazing uh, facts in the history of this subject is um, the Centers for Disease Control, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is one of the major research uh, agencies of the U.S. Public Health Service, uh, they have one division that studies uh, injuries and, and violence. Uh, and uh, uh, members of their staff were doing wonderful research uh, comparing uh, cities with lots of guns in them with comparable cities that did not have lots of guns in them, uh, and, and research of that sort. But, I mean, very carefully designed, controlled studies uh, indicating uh, powerful evidence that the uh, number of guns in circulation uh, was correlated with the increases in homicides, suicides, and so-called accidental deaths. Um, these studies were so persuasive that the National Rifle Association persuaded the members of the U.S. Congress to pass a, uh, a law and get the, uh, the CDC to pass a regulation that they could no longer do this kind of research. And uh, I, I was told this by the director of their uh, uh, injury and violence uh, study unit at the CDC at a, a conference we were at, and I thought that's that is unbelievable. But then when I was uh, applying for a grant from the CDC at one point, uh, I noticed that written into the grant proposal was this prohibition against doing research on uh, epidemiology of you know, gun-related deaths and, uh, uh, you know, testing hypotheses that guns might actually kill people. Um, I, I want to get, there's so much to talk about here, and we're going to have to sort of pick and choose because the hour is going by too fast. I do want to remind listeners that this is Community Radio, WERU, um, and we are broadcasting today online only, but we are at 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And this morning we're talking with Dr. James Gilligan on the topic of violence, our deadly epidemic, and its causes. Um, I, I want to I go on to talk about um, what, what doesn't work and then move on to what does work. But there seems to be a prevalence in our culture, and maybe this is because of the shame culture, that punishment works as a deterrent. Would you speak to that? Yes. I, uh, I wrote a, an article once in, in which I, I, I titled it uh, uh, Violence and Punishment is Our Criminal Law Based on One Huge Mistake. Uh, my, my point was that the notion that punishment deters crime is, while it seems intuitively plausible, turns out to be the opposite of the truth. Uh, when I say punishment, I distinguish punishment from restraint. Um, I, I do think that if somebody is violent and threatening other people or, or actually hurting them, yes, we do need to restrain the person if he or she won't uh, respond to verbal uh, you know, commands to stop behaving that way. In the same way that we restrain a two-year-old child from running in front of traffic if they don't pay attention to our telling them not to do it. We'll physically restrain them. But, you know, but we don't, uh, we don't injure the child as a result of their doing that. The whole point is to prevent injury. So I regard punishment as the infliction of uh, pain on somebody above and beyond whatever is unavoidable in the course of restraining them, um, such as by you know, when somebody's actively dangerous to other people, I certainly believe they need to be locked up. They need to be in a, a setting. Uh, we put them in prisons. I, I would totally redesign prisons uh, 
so they actually would be effective in uh, in uh, enabling people to stop being violent once they leave the prison, uh, which our current system does a terrible uh, uh, has terrible failures in doing that. But uh, I would uh, uh, want to point out that I saw on a day-to-day basis in the prisons that the more severely prisoners were punished, the more violent they became. And then there would be a vicious cycle. The more violent they were, the more they'd be punished, until finally the correction officers would have to come to me to say, you know, what can we do now? Because we've put this person in solitary confinement. We've deprived him of every privilege. uh, And there's nothing more we can do, and yet he's still violent. Well, you talk to him and see if you can figure out what's going on. Well, what was clear was that punishing uh, somebody is not, does not deter violence. Uh, it actually stimulates it. In fact, the most powerful stimulant of violence is punishment. The gratuitous, unnecessary infliction of pain on somebody, uh, you know, with the deliberate intention of, of making them feel the pain. Um, in, chi- in studies of child-rearing, you know, for, we've had 60 or 80 years of studies of, of child-rearing by developmental psychologists. And, you know, that's such a complicated subject, and there's so many different variables involved that, you know, there are not an awful lot of uh, uh, results or findings from this research that really have been reliably, repeatedly uh, confirmed. There's a real consensus, though, among developmental psychologists that the most firmly established finding from all of those decades of research is that the more severely children are punished, the more violent they become. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, I noticed this in the prison. Um, the level of child abuse that the prisoners had suffered was off the scale. Um, now, if if punishment of children would prevent violence, these men would never have become violent because they had already been punished to the greatest degree you can punish somebody without actually killing them. I mean, they had been punished to within an inch of their lives. Um, and that the only effect of that had been to make them more violent, to make them the most violent people in our society. So I really strongly uh, would... would draw the distinction between restraining somebody and and punishment as such. Now, I I think there's another issue here, and I sometimes feel that, you know, the American taxpayers um, uh, maybe don't understand the amount of money that we are spending on our correctional system and the little we get for the amount of money that we put in there. Why do we incarcerate such a high number of people who are the people that we are incarcerating, and do you feel they should be incarcerated? That is a really good, important question, and I've spent a lot of my life working on it. Um, so let me let me summarize it by saying that if you go look at the time from 1900 to the present, uh, the, in the first three quarters of the 20th century, from 1900 to the mid 1970s, the imprisonment rate in America was essentially unchanged. Uh, it was roughly 100 people per 100,000 population uh, in our society, uh, plus or minus 20, but uh, small variations. Starting in the mid-1970s, we in the United States started engaging in an unprecedented, unique social engineering experiment called mass incarceration or mass imprisonment, in which uh, after... Uh, Richard Nixon declared a war on crime, and then Ronald Reagan reinforced that. Um, the U.S. began sending more and more and more people to prison for longer and longer periods of time. The sentences became extended uh, and uh, became harder and harder to get paroles and so forth. So that the incarceration rate went up, oh, a good seven and a half times from 100 per 100,000 in our population, they're like 750 per 100,000 in our population. Most of the increase in the imprisonment population has not been for violent crimes. It's been for nonviolent property crimes and violations of the drug laws. Um, 
so the people we've been locking up for the most part, uh, you know, weren't violent to begin with. However, one thing I noticed in the prisons is the most effective way to turn a nonviolent man into a violent one is to send him to prison uh, for at least two reasons. One is um, that people get so humiliated and, and uh, often treated in such degrading ways in prisons that it, it uh, you know, would goad even the saintliest of persons to, uh, uh, to become more predisposed to violence because they'd be so filled with anger. But the second reason is that uh, they often have to be violent to survive. They're surrounded by a few men who are violent and will uh, rape them or rob them uh, uh, or even kill them unless they can demonstrate that they're as capable of violence as the other person. So it's been a huge mistake, and it has cost us huge amounts of money. We have the highest incarceration rate in the entire world, even compared with police states like Iran or China or places like that. Um, uh, we have far higher un uh, imprisonment rate than we ever had in the past. Now, you can say, well, has that had any effect at all in reducing the rate of uh, violent crime in America? Well, let me, let me mention, uh, and I always prefer to talk about the, uh, the homicide rate because that's far and away the most accurately measured uh, crime, uh, violent crime that we have. Also, it's the most extreme form of violence, so it's the most serious and important violent crime. So if we look at the murder rate in America, in 1975, when the imprisonment rate was the same as it had been throughout the 20th century, about 100 per 100,000, the murder rate was 8 per 100,000. Uh, that is, 8 people of every 100,000 were being killed each year in a murder. By 15 years later, the imprisonment rate had doubled. What was the murder rate? Exactly the same, 8 per 100,000. In another 12 years, the imprisonment rate had doubled again. Uh, so it was now four times as high as it had been at the beginning. What was the murder rate? It was still eight per hundred thousand. In other words, the the doubling and redoubling of the prison population or the imprisonment rate hadn't made the slightest dent in the murder rate in America. What what part did um, Nixon's war on drugs play on that, and how how has that played out? Have has has the war on drugs been successful? Oh, the war on drugs has been one of the biggest failures in American political history. Uh, it's, it's comparable, by the way, to the prohibition of alcohol. Uh, the only difference is the United States only had the prohibition of alcohol for uh, gosh, what was it? something on the order of about 14 years or so, 19... 19 or 20 to 1933. It was uh, abolished in 1933 or repealed. Um, we learned fairly quickly that prohibiting alcohol created far more violence than it prevented. Um, uh, the murder rate reached record high levels, not, not only because of prohibition. There were other reasons, too. But clearly, um, the prohibition of alcohol led to the... Uh, bootleggers, Al Capone and people like that, who were making millions of dollars uh, selling uh, uh, booze, which they wouldn't even have had that opportunity if, if alcohol hadn't mm -hmm. been so, uh, you know, made illegal. What, what do you think? I don't know if you're familiar with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I've heard of them, yeah. Yes, they are a group of retired FBI and law enforcement people who are in favor of the legalization and regulation of all drugs. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. I know it's been tried in other countries, and there's some big international uh, global reports that have been done on this. Um, what, what do you think about that aspect? What do we do about that war on drugs issue? The best thing we could do is to decriminalize all drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, that does not mean making them available, you know, for purchase over the counter, the way you can buy candy in a drugstore. Uh, but it does mean regarding uh, all drug use as, at worst, a problem in public health and preventive medicine. Uh, and uh, at least, uh, I mean, at the, at the positive end, it, it sometimes is, is relatively 
uh, harmless. Um, the uh, countries that have legalized uh, these drugs, or at least have decriminalized them, in Europe, there have been a number of different methods of doing that. Uh, by and large, they've been enormously uh, successful. Those countries have less of a, much less of a drug problem than we do. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, their their rates of criminal of violent crime, uh, and particularly the most violent of them, homicide, are a fraction of ours. Um, what it means is, for example, uh, in England for some time they had a practice of, of having public health clinics distribute heroin to heroin users uh, and heroin addicts. Um, uh, somebody working for an investment firm or a bank or an insurance company or whatever could uh, come in in the morning and get his daily dose of heroin and go to work all day and uh, uh, and, and lead a you know normal law-abiding life. Never had to deal with criminals. Never had to you know like the uh, usual heroin addict in this kind of have to steal television sets and so forth to get the money with which to buy these things. Um, this this program it, it put the criminal elements out of business uh, because uh, people could get this stuff for free and legally, and in the meantime, the people who were addicted were being offered and encouraged to participate in substance abuse treatment programs, which they were able to afford because they weren't wasting all their money on prisons. Uh, imprisonment is much more expensive than drug treatment and it's much less effective. There have been studies showing that, that uh, substance abuse treatment is, on a dollar-per-dollar dollar basis, seven or eight times more effective than imprisonment is in enabling people to break away from drugs and from the uh, uh, property crimes associated with them. Um, one of the ironies in all this is that the drugs we have illegalized actually uh, don't stimulate violence. They inhibit it. Um, when people take heroin, they are less likely to commit a violent crime than if they were not taking heroin. Uh, one of the narcotics closely related to heroin is, is morphine. They're all very similar biochemically. Morphine is called morphine because it's named for the Greek god of sleep, Morpheus, because what these drugs tend to do is not make people violent, puts them to sleep. And uh, the same is true of marijuana, People are less violent when they are under the influence of marijuana than uh, if they were not under the influence of it. Um, now, I am what not about, like what many, about alcohol? Oh, uh, al alcohol is the one drug, the one single drug that has been shown at scientifically acceptable levels of, uh, of confirmation uh, to actually lead to increased rates of violence. And, of course, that's the drug we have legalized. Mm -hmm. However... Since we repealed prohibition, the rate of violence related to alcohol has gone down because most of the violence related to drugs, whether it's alcohol or, or heroin, has always been not violence on the part of the user. It's actually been the violence on the part of the, the dealers and the sellers. It was Al Capone who was murdering people in the streets, uh, even more than the uh, you know relatively few people who would murders because they were, you know, drunk at the time or something. Mm. And, so, of course, today we have those huge drug cartels which yeah. make all their money. I, our time is running out. I would love to get into um, who benefits from increased violence. But first, I want to go in the few minutes we have left into uh, what, now we did talk about the decriminalization of drugs, but what other uh, things can we do in our culture to change, maybe it's change our way of thinking. Well, you know, in the last book I wrote, mm -hmm. I uh, called Why Some Politicians Are More Dangerous Than Others. Yes, I want to talk um, about that. What I discovered, much to my surprise, was that the only uh, consistent cause of violent epide of epidemics of violence, and that means of both homicide and suicide in America since 1900, uh, when these violent death rates first started being measured on a yearly basis by the uh, U.S. Public Health Service, what I discovered was that 
rates of suicide and homicide in America have increased dramatically after Republicans came to power and were elected president and decreased to an almost exactly equal extent after Democrats uh, were elected to the presidency. Now, when I first discovered this, I thought I, I was reviewing the, the public health statistics over the past century. I thought, that, this is absurd. It can't be that simple. And, of course, it's not that simple. I mean, it's not just the party label that results in, these, in epidemics of violence. I discovered that, that epidemics of violence occurred only during Republican administrations, and the rates of lethal violence were brought down below those epidemic levels only after Democrats got elected. I mean, this was absolutely consistent finding. Uh, but what I uh, quickly was concerned about was I, I, I know that correlations like this uh, alone don't prove causation. So you have to say, well, why are these violent death rates related to the party in power? And I discovered three economic causes and one psychological cause, which I'll mention. The three economic causes are unemployment, recessions, and increases in economic inequality, that is, the size of the gap between the rich and the poor. Um, all three of those sources of economic distress, it turns out, have increased when Republican administrations have been in power and have decreased when Democratic ones have. Uh, for example, the unemployment, both the rate and the duration of unemployment in America have increased during every single Republican administration since 1900 and have decreased during every single Democratic administration. Now, how is that relevant to violence? Well, uh, there's a whole library of uh, research studies showing that those economic variables predict violence rates. In other words, when unemployment rate goes up, so does the rates of suicide and homicide. So uh, can you talk about that relationship between inequality and violence, uh, not just in our culture, but I know in some of your books you've looked at other countries as well and you've examined the relationship between inequality and violence? Yes. The most powerful predictor of the homicide rate throughout the world is the size of the gap between the rich and the poor. Um, the, if you look at the countries in the world that have the lowest rates of homicide, you'd look at the countries of Western Europe, uh, you know, Sweden, Norway, but also France, Germany, Italy, and so on. And you would look at the other English-speaking democracies, Canada, Australia, etc. And you'd look at Japan, uh, which also has uh, one of the highest degrees of economic equality in the world. Those are the countries that have the lowest rates of homicide and have had no have been, not been involved in any aggressive wars, you know, uh, virtually since the end of, uh, of World War II. In other words, these are the least violent countries in, you know, in, in the modern world in the last several centuries. Um, of all the economically developed countries, which one has the highest rate of violence? Well, I've already mentioned that, the United States. Um, our homicide rates are five to ten times as high as those are. And our rate of economic inequality is much, much higher than it is in those countries. Um, the highest rates of, of, of murder and warfare in the world at large uh, are actually in the undeveloped or develop, so-called developing countries, although many of them are undeveloping, becoming actually more poor, um, those are the countries where the population tends to be divided into a tiny fraction of very wealthy people and a mass of starving peasants. Mm -hmm. And those are the countries that have the overwhelmingly largest amount of, of uh, homicides and of, of brutal warfare. And, uh, you know, as in Sudan or Somalia or the mm -hmm. Congo and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, there's a clear relationship between inequality and, uh, and violence. And there is a clear relationship in America between inequality and the political parties in power. 
there are excellent studies showing that, uh, uh, well, say, since, for example, since the end of World War II, uh, inequality has increased under Republicans and, and decreased under, under Democrats. Well, our, our hour is up. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gilligan, for um, speaking with us about violence, our deadly epidemic and its causes. And uh, thank you for your listeners uh, for listening to us. Be well, and please be with us next month on Healthy Options. <laughs>